Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Today, I'm joined by Evan Burr, president of Taves Asset Management and the Behavioral Investing Institute. He's here to discuss the results of a new study commissioned by the Institute to look at clients' behavioral traits and their readiness for the next big drawdown. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. And I am extraordinarily pleased to be here. And I think that I have maybe listened to all, if not almost all of your podcasts. So I'm interested. A standard deviation super fan who now has made it to the show. Welcome, sir. And our listeners won't be able to see, but you are wearing the coolest polo shirt I have ever seen in my life. So just imagine the coolest polo you can, and then it's 10 times better than that. So um, wife to thank for that. (laughs) Very, she has wonderful taste. So uh, Evan Taves recently commissioned a fairly exhaustive look at many aspects of behavioral investing, everything from client expectations to gender and wealth differences and risk attitudes, uh, our readiness for the next big crash. What was the impetus behind all of this? What made you want to do this research in the first place? Well, it's actually a follow-up study to one we did last year. And we've been going on many assumptions for uh, the portfolio advice that we give, as well as the behavioral advice that we give for many, many years. So to, to sort of back up a little bit, about 10 years ago, right after the financial crisis, uh, we saw a lot of people doing the wrong thing at the wrong time with their money. This is no secret to anyone in the industry. It's normal sort of behavior that we expect, right? You run away from a decline, you run into uh, the crest of a wave, as it were. So we had this set of assumptions uh, that people don't know how bad it can get. You know, they don't know market history, especially anything that happened before they started investing. So uh, on that subject, you know, we, when we think about significant events in our lives, like when, when I think about the financial crisis, I can remember people in our office screaming obscenities into the phone. I remember one in particular about, I'm going to throw you in front of a bus, right? When, when these, when these you know, stresses were high, let's just say. Um, while I remember those events, I can't conjure the feelings of fear that I had from that period. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and I'm sure that, that you know, you may, maybe you know the length of time one can sort of hold on to the feeling versus the memory. A barring, you know, significant trauma, I would imagine is different. Mm. But for those significant challenges that happened before our memories, you know, let alone the ones that happened recently that maybe we can still feel, but those that happened before our memories even served us, they're just stories, right? There's a story of, of inflation in the seventies. Ah, you know, I kind of remember waiting in line with my dad to buy gas. And I remember candy bars going from 25 cents to 35 cents, which was pretty significant as a kid. But those are just, most of it is just stories. You know, the, the, what happened after World War II, the Great Depression, all these things are just kind of stories in my mind. And most people who don't work in an industry have even vaguer, not, is it vaguer even a word? Um, <laughs> knowledge of what those stories are. So people don't know how bad it can get. It was one of our assumptions. And what would they do if one of those worst case scenarios played out? You know, what would their response be? Um, and, or, and it would be an imagined response, right? If we're asking someone, what is your imagined response to a situation, which is always going to be different from what your actual response is going to be because you don't know the circumstances around it, <laughs> which is one of those things that makes risk tolerance questionnaires, the standard ones anyway, really iffy. You know, what's the, what are you going to do if the market goes down 15% is a classic question or 20%. And the answer, of course, is, I don't know. Did it go down 20% in one day? Did it go down 20% because there was a dirty bomb in New York? Like, I don't know. Um, And then 
are people willing to accept lower returns for a lower probability of participating in significant declines? And what we found is all but 10% of investors said, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and then the impact of uh, knowing that there is crisis management in place in a portfolio, what does that do for you? And overwhelmingly, it brings peace of mind. Um, so we had these assumptions that we wanted to verify, and we ran the study last year just asking advisors questions about what they thought and what, you know, about their clients. And then this year we updated it to asking clients and advisors the same questions. So we asked the advisors what they thought about, you know, whether we're in a bubble, let's say. Then we thought, asked the advisors what they think their clients think. And then we asked the investors what they think. So there's sort of three perspectives there, two of them from, from one party. And the whole thing was really, really interesting. And we came away with a clearer view that there is massive disconnect in communication and understanding between clients and their, uh, between investors and the advisors, which you know, we sort of knew anecdotally and, you know, one can make that assumption, but naturally having hard data about the specifics of it uh, is really fascinating. And um, being able to see how it differs by age and by gender and by wealth um, and actually even, even timing. So the study that we did last year <clears throat> was at the beginning of the decline. So about half the answers came in before the market really started to decline and half came in after. And the answers are different, yeah. right? So it, it totally blows up the idea that a risk tolerance questionnaire has any long lasting significance because this is a matter of two weeks and the answers were different. So we know that as fear takes hold, you respond differently. And of course we knew that, again, we knew that as normal thinking human beings, but then to have the data to show it is really significant. And so then the question is, okay, how do we solve this? How do we solve for all of these, uh, these differences in attitude and understanding um, and communication and interpretation and internalization of information? So that's what we're working on. No, fascinating stuff. Couple, couple of comments. First of all, uh, I'm, whenever we talk about sort of people's responses in a, in a hot versus cool emotional state, I always go back to the Ariely research where they were trying to get to the bottom of how STIs spread, right? They're trying to get at, at people's sexual behavior, which is, um, you know, tricky, right? Tr tricky to measure. People are sort of reluctant to accurately self-report on this. So Ariely and company asked them all these questions about, you know, appropriate sexual behavior, you know, like, would you cheat on your partner? You know, do you use protection? You know, these sorts of things. And everyone gives the right answer, right? In a, in a cool emotional state, uh, everyone gives the right answer. Well, then, you know, this is a family program, but they show them pictures that make them uh, have amorous feelings. And then they give them this, the same, you know, the same questionnaire again, and everything's out the window, right? Like everyone's answers have changed dramatically. It's one of the reasons why we are such big proponents of measuring risk composure, which is, you know, effectively the emotional, the emotional lability of someone's scores, how much they're going to fluctuate. Uh, because for some people, they're relatively stoic. Other people are all over the map, depending on, you know, what, what happened last week. So you're right. The, the, these are fascinating results. I want to get into some of these fascinating results. So the, the first thing that jumped out at me, it's like 70 something pages. Uh, but I, but I looked at every one It was lots of great stuff. You found that clients are three times more likely than their advisors to say that they are very knowledgeable. So again, you ask, you know, advisors, what are your, what are your clients like? And you ask the clients, what are you like? And you sort of compare the, the Delta. So clients are three times as likely to say that they're very knowledgeable about markets as, as their advisors are to, to say that of them. And then men had a, had a similarly outsized uh, impact on saying that they were very knowledgeable. Uh, men were three times as likely as women to say that they were very knowledgeable about markets. So I'm going to ask you to make some inferences here. Do you think that clients misunderstand themselves or are advisors misunderstanding their clients? Well, I mean, I would 
start that by saying we are all misunderstanding ourselves and each other all of the time, depending on what circumstances are presenting themselves at the moment, right? I mean, so, well, let me ask you a question. I know that's obnoxious. It's your show. But why, why, did, why were you interested in becoming a therapist? Um, because I was a deeply flawed individual. I wanted to figure out my own quirks. So you wanted to understand yourself a little better. I wanted to understand myself better and, and um, people in my orbit. I had friends, I had friends who, that I was helping through, through various crises. And I found that fulfilling and, and, and rewarding. And I also wanted to understand what, what made me tick, certainly. Yeah. So it was about understanding, right? It was sure. about understanding you and others and helping them. And so if we sort of take that <clears throat> as, a, as a, a little piece of, the, of our, our world, that understanding of oneself and others is very hard to begin with. And then you involve the heightened emotions around one's money and mortality, which are inextricably linked, right? Then we have a really difficult situation for the advisor understanding the investor, the investor even listening to what the advisor is saying, let alone bringing it into their brain and heart and making it part of what they're able to, to accomplish on a regular basis. <laughs> so... Yes, clients misunderstand themselves, advisors misunderstand clients, we all misunderstand each other. And you know, you were mentioning hot and cold emotional states. Well, you know, if if a discussion is two people presenting their thoughts and a debate is two people trying to convince the others of their thoughts and an argument is two people trying to convince each other of their thoughts while not listening to the other person then it's sort of similar in, in heightened states of emotion, right? In the, in, the, in the teeth of last year, late March, when you can't really understand what's going on, what a global pandemic means, what markets falling through the, the floor, well, how can, you, how can you really listen to what's going on and internalize what's happening? That needs to be set up far, far in advance and have a structure to fall back on, um, to recognize what's going on, what the appropriate response is, what um, the likely outcomes are in the long term. So yeah, misunderstanding is, is rampant and between client and advisor. And we have a lot of information about that. You know, when, when you think of um, advisors and clients, over 50% of advisors believe that we are not in a, in a uh, bubble market. Over 50% of investors believe we are in a bubble. So even there, there's some miscommunication, right? The advisor, it's the advisor's job to be the, uh, the voice of wisdom for this client. And, and like the ever knowledgeable Brian Portnoy uh, talks about the information diet, right? They're the ones that are supposed to be the, the, the dietitian of that information. Yet, it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. So qu question here, I, I, I totally agree with you that that misunderstanding is rampant, that it, that it goes in both directions. I, I'm also familiar with some research that I thought was fascinating that I talk about all the time where uh, there's there's research to suggest that your coworkers are, are better predictors of, of your behavior than than you are. Right. So we we see ourselves through sort of a uh, optimistic, compassionate um, self-serving lens and others in some ways see us, you know, more dispassionately and are, are better equipped to predict how we're going to behave. And I think that that play, uh, that, that dynamic is at play in the advisor client dynamic. So while we're agreed upon the fact that misunderstanding is rampant, what, what can we do as an advisory community, as a, as a financial services profession to minimize the, the delta between who people are and, and, and how we see them? Are there things that we can do better as an industry to better understand our clients? There are, and there, there are a lot of great tools that are coming out now that I, I think you're even involved with some of them. We certainly are at the Behavioral Investing Institute. Try, you know, the idea of accelerated learning, right? How can we learn who our clients are on a deeper level faster to help them to make better decisions over the long run, right? So, 
can we get them to show us who they are, not just tell us? Right? We were talking about how you know, we present ourselves differently in different situations. And some people, when answering questions, they may present themselves aspirationally, right? Like this is who I wish that I were. So this is who I'm going to say that I am, because maybe if I keep saying it, I'll become that person, sure. right? Then there are others that are sort of, you know, the sort of minority, I think are sort of grounded. Yeah, this is who I am. And this is probably what I would do. And then there are others that are defeatists about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, I'm always going to get it wrong. The money thing is too confusing. It's scary. Uh, uh, you know, so I think that while education has been proven to do not a ton in the long run, it's because of the way that education is presented. Mm-hmm. And when I think of education, I think of it as a, as a didactic communication of knowledge, right? Here, I'm going to give you this information. Whereas training is the application of information. And so I think that trying to put out a fire or talk someone off the cliff with education is not going to work in most cases. Yes. Whereas if you've built a structure of training where they have an understanding of how bad it can get, what the history is, what they're, how they're likely to respond, um, and another way of looking at it, that can sort of build a scaffolding over the gulfs that, of, of challenges that they may experience. You know, I think of, we all have a breaking point with everything. Right. That's why torture works. Not that I'm advocating torture. I'm just saying that it has. Well, I'll leave that. In fact, <laughs> um, we all have a breaking point, whether it is a significant decline, a flat market, inflation, uh, whatever it might be. There's some point where we say enough. I can't take it anymore. And so the advisory community, their job, I, part of their job is to help extend that breaking point. And to do that through training, and in some ways, it's uh, you know, it's a way. It's one of the ways is to vaccinate people, in essence, against these things, right? Give them little doses of it on a regular basis to understand. Okay, you know, we're going to have significant declines. We're going to have inflation. We're going to have bubbles. We're going to have uh, rising interest rates. All these things are going to occur during, likely to occur during your investing lifetime. So let's talk about them specifically and how you might respond to them. And then let's talk about pre-commitments. What are we gonna do when they do happen? And we both have an obligation there. The advisor has an obligation and the investor has an obligation. And I would think most investors think, well, my obligation is to pay you 1%. That's my (laughs) obligation, get with it, pal. But really, I think most smart people and uh, accomplished people, and the people that we, we questioned in this study had, um, the bulk of them had investable assets between one and five million bucks. So they're not, um, you know, they've, they've had some, some success in life. Yeah. Those people are generally, they welcome a challenge. Mm-hmm. So, okay, this is what we're gonna do when this happens. Here's what you're gonna do, and here's what I'm gonna do. And we're gonna do this together. So not just telling them the plan, but including them in the plan, which doesn't mean letting them have asset allocation, decision-making abilities, right? They don't get to choose that you're going to buy a bajillion shares of Tesla because it's awesome, right? No, but you want them to have buy-in on the entire process so that they feel ownership of the process and the plan. Yeah, I love I love this idea of sort of self-education and just helping clients be a bit of a market historian as a form of inoculation. You know, I think most people... When you look at the fact that over the last, uh, you know, over the last 35 years, we've had an average intra-year drawdown of about 40%, excuse me, 14%. I think that would surprise most people, you know, because every time there's a 10% dip in the market, the, you know, the, the talking heads talk about it like it's the first time that it's ever happened, not like it's, you know, as regular as, as you know, your birthday. Right. And so I think that if we can if we can help people get a sense of perspective and expectation, I think we can inoculate them against some of, uh, of the worst behavior. Let's talk just finishing off this question. Let's talk a little bit about about the confidence finding with with respect to men. I mean, I think it sort certainly conforms to the popular characterization of men as being um, more confident and perhaps more overconfident than women. Is that what you take from this or do you have a, a, a different take? The, you know, the men confidence question is kind of an ug to me. 
<laughs> you know, it sort of, it, it just reeks of like the no remorse bumper sticker. Yeah, right. You know, we know from countless other studies that women are better at this. Yeah. Women are better, more patient investors. Yet when hiring people, almost all of the applicants are men. Mm-hmm. And so women listening to this podcast, please, well, I guess if you're listening to you're already in the industry, tell your fellow women that are not in the industry, it's a great, interesting place to work and you're naturally better at it. So please come, come, it's fun. You know, I think one of the things about the male overconfidence in this industry, let's just keep it to this industry, is that it wasn't until 1974 and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that women, and if you're not familiar with that, it it, um, made discrimination based on race, sex, uh, familial status, I think, and a few other things uh, illegal. So before that, if a woman wanted to apply for a credit card or some of the other other, uh, groups mentioned, they could be denied just you know, they get out the rubber stamp and stamp woman on it. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a reasonable uh, reason to, to deny them credit. Mm-hmm. Now, so we're only a couple generations of women in this industry away from that. Not that there weren't women in the industry before, but it, it, it has been such a male dominated industry and still is, unfortunately, that I think their ex- men's experience in this industry as their industry is that they know. So, you know, that comparison of they know compared to who, right? The, with the investors saying, as you mentioned before, thinking that uh, they were um, very knowledgeable, three times more likely than the advisors to say they're very knowledgeable. It's a matter of who they're comparing themselves to. Are they comparing themselves to their family members? In which case, maybe they are. Mm-hmm. Where the advisor is comparing them to themselves, right. <laughs> in which case they're likely not as knowledgeable because they're not in the, in the industry. So the, the men thing is tough. And I, I wish that we had uh, more women in the industry to, to show them how it's done. Yeah. Right. It's, it's always amazing. And, you know, the other thing that I look at when you look at the, the financial confidence gap, I've looked at that by, by age cohort and by, by gender, and what you find is that uh, among, among folks who are 65 and older, the financial com- confidence gap between men and women is enormous. And, you know, between it, it, people in middle age, it shrinks somewhat, but is still very present. Among young adults, it's almost uh, shrinks to zero. And what will be interesting to see is, um, you know, I just sort of think everything's good and bad. On, on the one hand, we're, we're socializing and raising a women, uh, a generation of, of, of young women and, and girls to be part of the conversation, to hopefully get into the industry uh, in, in bigger and better ways. Hopefully we're promoting, uh, you know, egalitarian attitudes about money. And it'll be interesting to see that as, that as society uh, reaches greater parity with respect to, to men and women and, and how they think about money and, and the degree to which they're part of the financial industry, Maybe we can dream of a day when women are just as bad with money as men are. But <laughs> we can only dream, Daniel. <laughs> but but today, as it stands right now, women are quite a bit better. Uh, quite a bit better. All the all the research is with you. So uh, one of the findings that I found fascinating: we think you know the the birthday song goes you know another another year older and wiser too. And yet, in your study, you you found that self-reported investment knowledge falls with age. Okay. So the older someone was, the less they reported having, you know, a, a, a discernible level of investment knowledge. So wh- what do you think is at play here behind the scenes? Is, are, is, is age sort of engendering greater humility? Are markets humbling people who have, you know, seen some things? Or, or is this generation just maybe more plugged in and like legitimately more, more knowledgeable than their parents and grandparents. So I would say it's a little, actually, I was going to say it's a little bit of both. I was, it's a lot of both. Mm-hmm. And uh, my father-in-law has a lot of great aphorisms. And one of them is, uh, and maybe he got it from somewhere else, but um, the most, <clears throat> the most you'll ever know about parenting is the day before your first child is born. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
And so maybe it's the same thing with, with, with investing. You know, the most you'll know about investing is uh, the day before your first bear market. Sure. Um, so 50% of people under 45 believe that they are very knowledgeable about investing in markets. I have a friend who works for the attorney general in New York in the sort of tech department. And he always has a troop of 25 recent college graduates working on computery stuff. And right now, 100% of those 25 students are trading in the markets. 100%, all of them. That was not the case before you could just switch from, you know, you could pick up your exocortex. Well, I guess your exocortex was already in your hand and you could switch from Instagram to Robinhood and buy some stocks and then go back to, you know, flipping through your friends. Yeah. So absolutely, it is, it is a much more plugged in world now where expectations are that it is going to be extraordinarily easy to trade just as easy as everything else is on your phone and that you're going to win because that's all we've done for the last 12 years, right? It's been easy. So if you've been, let's say you've had a job for 11, 12 years, whatever that job might be, maybe you're an attorney, you've got some experience, right? You know what you're doing at that point. Well, in this industry, if you've been doing this for 11 or 12 years, you've had rising markets, you've had rising markets, you've had rising markets, a couple flat markets and a little dip, right? Yeah. But basically, there has been very little trauma. Last year was scary, but by the time investors got their statements, the market had already bounced back significantly. So if there were older investors who actually look at their statements rather than just picking up their phone, their exocortex and checking there at every possible moment of the day, it wasn't as significant, right? So as you were saying, the older you get, the less knowledgeable uh, people report themselves as. So they've been through markets that have humbled them. Yes. They also just have the wisdom of experience to know that this is complicated. You know, you and I have talked about Bitcoin before and um, how I've had, uh, you know, you and I both have had friends who are like, you got to do this. You got to do this, you know, 10 years ago, this is the future. You got to do it. Uh, it just seemed too hard. Right. And now the more I learn about it, the more I realize I just know nothing, nothing, nothing. The more I learn, the less I know. And it's, it's amazing. And I think that is, that is a, a function of age as well as the, you know, the young people just being more plugged in because it is easier. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see sort of the net net of all this involvement in markets. You know, on, on the one hand, I'm thrilled. Like, I'm, I'm thrilled that people are, uh, and especially young people, are, are learning about markets at a younger age. They're getting involved. They're starting to save. And then on the other hand, I see a lot of sort of, um, you know, what, you, what you'd call poor behavior with respect, you know, it's not all sensible. It's not all sensible investing. A lot of it's very risky. A lot of it's very ill-informed. And I think a lot of people are getting the right result for the wrong reason and, and sort of learning the wrong lesson. So it'll well, be- I think you just yeah. described my youth. <laughs> <laughs> ill-informed, you know, what? just all of that was, I mean, isn't that what being young is about, right? Yeah. Making the wrong decisions to find the right decisions taking on risks that you then realize are unreasonable as you mature. It's just now it's happening on one's phone with options. Yeah. And so I think that it's both, you know, fantastic and terrifying. You know, the, when you're young, I used to do a lot of martial arts. And at one point I had to stop because it went from getting hurt to getting injured. Hmm. I didn't mind the getting hurt. I was doing martial arts. That's what you expect. But after a couple surgeries and a blown out eardrum, I was like, okay, these are injuries. Yeah. These are no longer getting hurt. And so I think for the most part, younger people have less money and they will sustain injuries or they'll, they'll get hurt, but hopefully sustain fewer injuries. And as they mature, they will realize that perhaps a plan might be a decent idea. Um, yeah. 
That's, that's, a, that's a great, that's a great parallel. That's my hope is that people learn the right lessons, right? They, they, they learn the right lessons from this, whether they come out on top or, or not, that, that they learn the right lesson and that it's a gateway to, you know, a, a lifetime of sensible engagement with capital markets and not, not that folks get burned so badly injured, you know, to, to use your term so badly that, that they can't bounce back. So let's talk about these expectations, though. So, you know, Meb, Meb Faber and others are, are always posting things on, on Twitter and LinkedIn about forward return expectations that investors have. And, and he's posted some stuff that's like in the ballpark of 17% annualized. And this is very consistent with people's sort of the, the psychological tendency for people to, to anchor to the present and, and sort of project it into the future indefinitely. Because yeah, like we've been getting 15 or 20% a year for, for some time now. So in some ways it's not surprising. In your study, you found that most folks, so 59% of people are expecting a five to 9% increase annualized uh, over the next five years. Uh, an expectation that, that falls uh, with age. So younger folks are expecting higher returns than, than older people. So normally I would say totally reasonable, you know, five to 9% is, is right in line with, with long-term historical averages. Uh, you know, however, on the back of 12 years of, of plenty, like you've just talked about, I sort of feel like that feels like, like a stretch perhaps, but to be candid, I thought it was a stretch five years ago too. I mean, you know, and I, and I was wrong. So how, how do you think about this? What, what are you seeing in terms of people's forward return expectations and do advisors have work to do to kind of temper those expectations? Oh yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know about, uh, I, I looked at the, some of the results of that study as well. And I don't know who the people were that were polled. So the people that were polled here are, as I mentioned, are those with working with an advisor and have the bulk of them between a million and five million investable. Mm -hmm. So that that group that was polled that came up with a what was it 17, 18% number, maybe a broader swath that aren't working with an advisor. Right. Um, what we found are a little less than a quarter of clients investors are expecting eleven percent or more per year. Yeah. And uh, about a sixth under 45 are expecting 20% annualized over the next five years. Annualized over the next five years, they're expecting 20 plus percent. There are 0% people over 75 who are expecting that, right? <laughs> because they've been around a little while. So yeah. 45 in our world is considered young, which is kind of funny, um, but, it, but it's the way it is, right? Um, so let's give those people the benefit of the doubt and say they've been, they started investing when they were 25, Yeah, right? which 20 years ago was not as easy as, as it is now, right? You had to go through some hoops for sure. Mm -hmm. um, what they've experienced for half of their investing life is, you know, what we we're just talking about Super Bowl markets. Um, the five-year number on the S&P, five-year annualized number on the S&P is 18%. The 10-year is 15%. So when we talk about the education and training, they've been trained that that's what they're going to get. Yeah. So it's not unreasonable that they would expect high returns based on that training. It is unreasonable when you look at long-term history of markets. That you know that's just not the norm. And if one wants to get a uh, a consistent return, I'm sure you can go to your local bank and get a CD with a point zero 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 five return, right? But, uh, you know, what you were saying about expectations uh, from our study being somewhat reasonable in the bulk of them, in that, you know, five to 9% feeling unreasonable now, uh, it, it, I don't think it takes into account that returns aren't consistent. Mm. And that to get uh, to, have, to average out the last 20 years or 10 years of whatever returns into that you know, long-term average of about 10% for the S&P, we're going to see some pain at some point. Now, I would love as an industry to get away from the projecting of what's going to happen next. Right. You know, right. like 
guessing what's going to, and we actually, we keep track every year of what top Wall Street strategists predict the, the S&P to do that year. They are wildly wrong always. <laughs> so we, we have back to 2000, what they, what they predict every year will be. They got it right once by accident, I think 2005, this sort of consensus. Other than that, they always predict positive. The average of their predictions, surprise, surprise, is about 10%. And they are off by, I think it's 13 percentage points, plus or minus. So that is a very, very widespread of wrongness, right? What, what's incredible to me is I looked at all the big end-of-year S&P forecasts, right? Because, I mean, all the corona stuff started happening, well, you know, it sort of came to the public consciousness in, in February and, and early to mid-March. So you look at the banks and what they were saying in, in January for the year and their, their expectations for the year. What's incredible is that last year, every single major shop on Wall Street undershot the actual performance of the S&P dramatically. And if you had told them in January, hey, there will be a global shutdown and a worldwide pandemic, they would have missed it by that much more, right? I mean, they would have they would have lowered their forecasts, I think, enormously. And so forecasting really is is a loser's game. But you know, I, I try to think in terms of, of probabilities and not sort of binary forecasts. And from a probabilistic perspective, I, I think you could say two things with, with a fair degree of certainty. Over the medium term, you know, five to 10 years, I think it's unlikely that you get 9% a year if, if past is prologue. And I think we could say with, with a high degree of probability that there will be a great deal of, of, of pain somewhere in those nine years because there just kind of always is. So we have to help clients expect, you know, clients hear, oh, markets do about 10% a year. And they go, okay, cool. And they get out the compound interest calculator and they go, okay, that's a good gig. You know, 10, 10% more every year than the year before. We need to help them understand that they do about 10% a year, but that it's almost never 10%. It's going to be up 40, down 20, you know, uh, and, right. and so forth. Yeah, when you, when you look at the, if you round the S&P to whole numbers, since the mid 40s, it's hit 10% twice. So- <laughs> Let's let's instead of trying to guess, let's create plans that accommodate for the different kinds of markets that we're going to experience. And I like to think of it. Uh, I like riding bicycles, and so I think of it as the the spokes on the wheel. Right, the spokes can't all be on one side, yeah. or it's not going to roll. And so you need spokes that will accommodate for the different kinds of markets that we're going to have. And it, you know, we we while the average that we see is there are two 37% declines per decade. And that's going back to the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these things are going to keep happening. All these different kinds of challenging markets are going to keep happening. New kinds of challenges are going to arise. So let's stop trying to guess and start trying to, to build logical plans that, that accommodate for the, the balance of behavioral and emotion or behavioral and economic needs. Yeah. Okay. So let's stay on the topic of plans for a moment. One of the, one of the things that uh, a drum that I have been beating for a very long time is that a lot of advisors who say their clients have a plan, when you ask the clients if they have a plan, they don't know that they have one, right? So there is, there is clearly sort of a large chasm between how we think we're communicating with our clients and, and how that communication is being picked up. That was something uh, you all found in your study as well, that, that there's a huge gap between how, how well advisors think they've communicated their plan and how well that plan has actually been communicated. I think that is a a, a big thing for the industry to pick up on. Like we are perhaps doing the right thing in most instances, but not in a way that matters or not in a way where there's uptake with, with our clients. Any sort of, any more insights you have there or any sort of practical tips you have for, for advisors to give a plan that actually sticks and resonates with, with a client? Absolutely. So in the, in the Behavioral Investing Institute, we coach investment advisors. So I spend a lot of time talking to investment advisors. And I love investment advisors because they're, you know, most of them are out there really trying to make a difference in people's lives and help people to achieve their objectives and live a comfortable life where they, they are satisfied. Um, 
So when polled, 70% of advisors said that they had communicated a plan of what to do during a significant decline. Only 50% of investors say that their advisors communicated that plan. Of those 50% that say that they communicated the plan, what do you think the percentage is that actually know what that plan is? Right. So I wish we'd asked that question. It yeah. would have been a difficult question to ask, but I'm going to guess it's pretty low. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they told me, you know, yeah, they did. But that follow-up question, what is the plan? Well, you know, we're going to get more bonds or something. You know, it's, it's <laughs> what we found was there, there was confusion basically about what to do in the case of, you know, of this plan for significant declines. We asked the, the advisors what they would do. And two thirds of them said in a significant decline, we're going to buy more stocks. That was not the case with the investors. Their answers were all over the place. Basically what their answers said is we don't know. And we also have, you know, you can point to the studies. We can all look at them that that is not, that that is an aspirational claim by the investment advisors that they are going to buy more stocks when the market goes down. We can see over and over and over again with the dot-com bust, with the financial crisis, with last year, that that has not been the case. They either freeze or, in some cases, they sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see the outflows you know, time after time. So I think that what, can, what practical tips do we have here? It is constant reinforcement of the plan, creating framework uh, for market challenges, So as I was sort of saying, building a scaffolding, right? Building a structure so that they know what these challenges are going to be and communicating them clearly when people are in that calm state of mind, right? This is what we're going to do. Here's how your portfolio is designed to accommodate for the challenge. Here's the history behind that challenge. You know, let's say it's significant declines, right? All right, here's how your portfolio is designed to deal with significant declines. Here's the history behind them. Generally, after significant decline, the markets bounce back up. Here is what instinctively you will likely want to do, which is run away from that thing which is trying to kill you. (laughs) So let's think of another way of looking at that. Let's think of it as a sale, right? Let's try and ingrain that. Let's rewire ourselves, you know, myelination in your brain. Let's rewire that to being a sale. Now, what are you likely... What is your response likely to be in that? What is your emotional and uh, uh, you know reactive response going to be? You're likely going to want to do something rash, right? We as Americans are great at taking action. <laughs> we're not great at introspection, but we are awesome at taking action. So we're going to want to take action when that happens. And then so the advisor would want to normalize and externalize that, right? It's normal to want to be afraid, it's normal to want to get out of the way of this thing that's trying to kill you. Normalizing it, externalizing it. Every, a lot of people feel this way. I feel this way sometimes. But, and this is where it gets to the pre-commitment, what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to buy more. You're going to see this as an opportunity and hang tight. So building, and you can do that for any challenge. Build a structure around it like that at calm times and then reinforce the plan in different ways. Because, well, what, what, what kind of learner are you? You know, visual, visual, oral, verbal, physical, social, which one you got? Are you asking me? I'm asking you. So I will have to tell you then that the psych research on learning styles found that it's pretty lame, that there isn't much of a difference between the different types and that I don't believe in learning styles. <laughs> Amazing, I'm so psyched to hear that. <laughs> That's fantastic. So there's, so that's really, I love that. Thank you for that. So, but what I would take from that is that one needs to communicate in lots of different ways though, right? Sure. That's, that's what they find, right? That's what they find that you need to communicate in lots of different ways. And that sort of good teaching is good teaching, right? I mean, there's, and good teaching is multimodal. Right. It's, it's didactic. It's experiential. It's got, you know, it's got pieces of everything, but that, but that good teaching looks, looks a lot more like itself than, than sort of this highly individualized thing that, that, that we maybe sort of thought was the case in the past. Yeah. That's been pretty, 
that's been pretty thoroughly dunked on at this point. So yeah, good multimodal, yes. multimodal, multimodal, good teaching is good teaching. And, you know, I, I just want to, you know, I want to build on something you said too, which, you know, you use the word normalized back when I was a therapist, that was the first thing we were taught to do. Right. And it's, it's a little counterintuitive to, to say like, Oh, like, you know, client comes in and, and they're like, I'm in pain. I want to sell everything. It's a little counterintuitive for you to go. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I kind of feel the same way too. Uh, we, we instead go, Oh no, how dare you? You can't do this. You know, this is the time to double down blood in the streets, whatever, you know, sort of wall street maxims. But it's, it's only after we sort of roll with that resistance that our clients will actually listen to us. It's only after we've normalized their response instead of telling them that they're irrational or they're silly or they're short-sighted. You can normalize a behavior without condoning it, right? Like you, you can normalize a behavior and then follow that up by saying, you know, I feel that way, you feel that way. Here's why we're not going to do that right? Normalization isn't, isn't permission. And I think that sometimes we, we confuse those things. Yeah. And, and with that, here's what we're going to do. This is what we are going to do instead. And another thing is I, I, I think that because our industry as most do has such a specific language to it that we lose track of being able to speak in intelligible sentences to normal people. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so when we ask the question about uh, asking investors, are we in a bubble? 15% of people over 75 did not know what that term meant. Wow. Right, we just think stock market bubble, everybody knows what that is, that's just in everything, right? Everybody knows what that means. But 15%, and yeah, that's a small number of, of people over 75, but it's a number at all. Right. That did so when we think about the most basic terminology, don't say equities, say stocks, don't say fixed income, say bonds. You know, like just and and you know, I've heard people say you're dumbing it down. You're not dumbing it down, you're smartening it up because you're making it accessible to more people. Well, and you know, there's there's two things like there's two things with jargon i think jargon serves a gatekeeping function right that's why we get paid the big bucks and that's why any profession gets paid the big bucks because you know they know the right words and they call it a contusion and not a bruise or you know whatever right they call it they jargon serves a gatekeeping function that allows people within a profession to charge a premium for what they do so i think we over rely on it I think a fish doesn't know it's wet. So we talk to each other about equities and fixed income and, you know, bubbles all, all the time and just assume everyone knows what that is. Uh, that's what it means. But I think sometimes we get insecure about the value that we add too. they go, well, I need to put on, I think, especially for young advisors or young people now I need to put on this sort of air of, you know, this, this air of, of, of prestige or whatever to, to try and Im, Im influence my clients and impress them and help them think that I'm adding value when the opposite is actually the case, that people don't want to be talked down to, people don't want to be made to feel confused, and that if you can, if you can break it down for a client in a way that they can understand, to me, that 15% don't know what a bubble is, is one of the most powerful findings in your whole study because it shows you the extent to which a term that is really a colloquial term, I mean, that's a term that is used fairly widely. That's not, that's not one that I would have assumed had a lot of misunderstanding around it, but it shows you just how, just how prevalent it is. Uh, that's, that's great. I and mean, that speaks to the power of deep connection and, and getting rid of the jargon and just connecting with someone where they're at. So uh, let's, while we're on bubbles now, now that everyone on the podcast knows what a bubble is, I, I want to talk about, I want to talk about this, this bubble thing. I'm, I'm really sort of a two minds here because what you found in the study is that, that twice as many investors, like in clients as advisors think that we are in a bubble right now. Um, I'm curious what you make of that and whether or not you think it's the role of a financial advisor to sort of be on the lookout for, for financial bubbles. Uh, because, you know, I, on the one hand, we know the wealth destroying impact of a bubble is tremendous. 
but on the other hand, we know that there's also sort of a bubble in calling market bubbles and that this is something that people like to sort of scream about on the news uh, and, and have been for many years and, and they've been wrong. So how do you think about that as, as an advisor's job to be sort of a, a watch person for financial bubbles? Well, I mean, if there were a Hippocratic oath for advisors, you know, do no harm, right? Yeah. Preservation of wealth over, over growth, I think is, is, is paramount. Um, and, and it is shocking this disconnect between what the investors and the advisors think about a bubble, though not Though I can understand it on some level, because if, if, if we're assuming that advisors have more knowledge about markets, which we would hope that they do, right? They may see, okay, well, the Fed has supported risk assets, so, and has continued to do so in an extreme way. You know, we're still sort of in the, the financial crisis uh, market support mode. Um, then, well, we, we can see that the Fed is, is going to continue to support as much as it can, right? So maybe it doesn't feel like a bubble. It just feels like a supported market that we're con- continuing to participate in. And for an end user investor, they see that Jeff Bezos has more money than the GDP of three quarters of the countries on the globe. And they think that's bananas. Yeah. How can that be? Um, it must be a bubble. Right, uh, I, can, I can see it. Um, I think it is absolutely the advisor's job to plan for the unexpected. And what we've seen over the last, uh, from the dot-com bust to the financial crisis to the end of 2018 to last year, to all of these declines, they have picked up in speed exponentially. So for an advisor to think, well, I'll just make sure to get out before the next one. Yeah. Hogwash. Yeah. Right. It's, it's not likely to happen. So one as an advisor needs to plan for these unexpected events and uh, whether we're in a bubble or not, in some ways doesn't matter because nobody expected last year for what happened. Uh, I don't think, and I think an equal number of people didn't expect the massive rebound from last year. So neither of those things were expected. Um, And we've seen over and over again that, as we were saying before, prediction is a fool's game. So yes, it is absolutely the role of the financial advisor to accommodate for the unexpected. And, you know, markets can go from ridiculous to absurd to bananas. And, you know, the bubble can keep getting bigger and bigger, even if we think it's totally unreasonable. Yeah, and I, I think it's important, you know, just just with my own money, I've been trying to look for for pockets of sanity, right? And I think there's I think there's plenty, candidly. I think there's you know plenty of of things that are reasonably priced. I think some of the bubble alarms have been sounded because it's kind of come it's kind of come to everyday items, right? We like you know three houses in my neighborhood went on this went on sale uh, the other Friday and they were all gone the same day, right? I mean, it's just like things like that. Like we see the price of, you know, we see the price of lumber and toilet paper and all this stuff just going crazy. And so I think it's it's easy for for the every man or every woman to look around and go, hey, like there's some things in my surroundings that, that are feeling kind of bubbly. Uh, but I think it's an advisor's job to be on the lookout and to help them find parts of the market that that maybe aren't quite so bubbly. So last question here, um, one of the things that I'm very interested in and, and I'm always trying to combat against is non-compliance with advice. So we know that across sort of context, everything from, you know, medical advice to, you know, to nutrition and, you know, doing what your trainer says to doing what your physician says to doing what your advisor says, there's a huge body of literature to say that people do not follow through with advice. One of the leading causes of death in our country is people not taking their medication as prescribed. So people who are sick have been to the doctor, have gotten a diagnosis, have gotten a treatment and a cure, and then they just don't take it, right? You know, so I mean, people are are stubborn, people, there's this last mile problem, there's this behavior gap that's well documented. Yet, 
In your survey, you found that 98% of advisors say that many or most of their clients follow their advice. What do you make of this disconnect between sort of the extant literature that says that people don't really listen to advice all that well and the advisors that you're talking to that are saying, yeah, people do what I ask them to do? Well, I think there's a couple of things there. Some of these advisors and investors that we're talking to, um, they're going to have discretion, right? So there's, there's, not, there's not really a choice so much there. Uh, and I think that the advisors are seeing what the clients are following through on. But I think ultimately there's a broken advisor communication model, which is that I'm going to tell you some stuff, you're going to understand it, and you're going to do it, right? And uh, I think that advisors, advisors feel traction there because they sort of tick the box that I said what to do. Um, we have we have a, a tool that, that allows for a communication structure around you know, bringing the focus back to the plan. And then what's the thing that they're not doing that they should be doing? You know, how far along are they in these various components of um, having enough uh, equities in their, in their portfolio to meet their needs? Insurance, all of these sorts of things, where are they in these scales, right? Because it's, it's, there is a scale from zero to 100% there. And, you know, you, you move incrementally in some of these things. But I think that the, just because some, you know, as we were talking about, just because an advisor says something doesn't mean it's been understood and internalized. And it takes that training over time. And it takes stress testing different situations because it may feel like a client understands and has internalized what has been uh, communicated to them. But when it comes to a crisis, high stress moment, can they follow through? Yeah. Um, and I think that what we find is and often, often cases, no, they can't. And so that delegator client then wants to take back control. Um, and so, you know, when we looked at the study, we found that um, the went in a decline that, you know, that I was mentioning where investors or other advisors wanted to buy stocks in a decline and investors just kind of didn't know what to do. I think that that also is just an indication that the advisors and the clients are just not quite meshed all the time. And what the advisor role has become more of is as almost a, in a money life coach, because there are so many more decisions that need to be made around financial health than just, you know, buying stocks. Yeah. Uh, that I think that, and I know that life coach is kind of an icky word to some people, <laughs> but it, it seems to be more of the direction that things are going because now as what, you know, what, every, what, what young people are doing now, the older people are going to be doing in what, four years, five years. So the advisory community has to catch up to that in some way or the another. And their investment advice specifically and exclusively may not be the thing that they're looking for. Yeah. Okay. I said that was the last question. It was a little bit of a lie, but it was the last hard question. These are just fun lightning round questions. Lightning round question number one, what should my next guitar be? Okay, so I can see the Les Paul gold top back there. Got it. Tally Deluxe, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, you know, you know me. Um, and I think you've got a Gretsch Duo Jet. I have a Gretsch uh, and a Telecaster. Okay, well, you're in the South, so you should get an electrical guitar company guitar. They are 100% made out of aircraft-grade aluminum. So you don't have to adjust the action. And I just lost like half your listenership. But anyway, you can get them anodized blue, red, purple, whatever you want. But they're 100% aluminum and they sound incredible. And they're handmade in uh, Alabama, your home state. Alabama? Okay. Yeah, well, that sold me. If the first part didn't, the last part did. I'm sold. Uh, second question, greatest metal band of all time. Uh, you know, you mentioned this is a family show. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to play it safe and say I'm a sugar nut. Okay. have no idea who that is, but I'll be checking them out after this last question. Top three guitar riffs or solos of all time. I will take a riff or a solo. Ah, 
again, the family show thing becomes a problem. So uh, as Daniel knows, I'm a total metalhead punk rock guy. Um, okay, my hometown is Washington, D.C., though I lived in New York for 25 years now. So I'm gonna actually going to go for a bass line. Okay, that will allow it. Um, Waiting Room by Fugazi, bass line. Excellent riff. Yeah. Um, so I can't say that. Um, can I just leave it at one? <laughs> say, say what you'd like, but people know if you, you check these out at your own peril. Okay. South of Heaven by Slayer. South of Heaven by Slayer. Wolverine Blues by Entombed. Okay, good. This is great, though, because if you didn't come up with three, I was going to give you like stuff you would hate. I would be like, oh, he loves Stevie Ray Vaughan or something, you know, and then Booty Blues. Your whole, your, whole, your whole reputation would be ruined. Hey, man, this was awesome. You provided a ton of value. If people want to read the report, if they want to find out about uh, you or your company or the Institute, uh, where can people go to, to follow you and, and read more about what you're up to? So I am on LinkedIn, Eben Burr. Uh, you can go to tapescorp.com, which is spelled weirdly, but T-O-E-W-S-C-O-R-P. Uh, BIIcoaching.com, the Behavioral Investing Institute. I'm mostly a voyeur on Twitter, um, but I'm there. Or you can just send me an email at eben at tapescorp.com. Awesome. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. This was a blast. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.